Over the last several weeks, beginning in 1 Peter, we looked at the joy of our salvation in this great thing that God has done for us, that which he didn't have to do. We've looked at the joy that is ours because of our salvation. And in the book of Romans, in chapter 12, we've been looking at what is the rightful response to this gift of salvation as an overflow of the joy that we have for the Lord, and that is our service to him. And so we've looked at what serving God looks like according to Romans chapter 12, and it begins with a motivated service. Verse 1 of chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. And so Paul is urging the church to serve God as they look at the mercy of God, as we have a forward look at God's mercy, as we look backward at what God has saved us from, the mercy should motivate us to worship Him and serve Him as He desires. So we have a dedicated service that continues in verse 1, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So Paul makes it very clear through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that as we view the mercies of God, we should be motivated to give to Him ourselves as a holy sacrifice, that which is set alone for Him, a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, as they would be so accustomed to in Jewish worship, but we climb on the altar of God each and every day and say, Here am I, I am here to serve you, but a living sacrifice wants to climb off of the altar, that right? Or doesn't want to get on at all because we understand something about sacrifice. So we are to present ourselves. We are to come before the Lord and say, here I am. I am ready to serve you as a sacrifice. Now, we know what it means to sacrifice. We're just not very good at it. We need to learn how to be better at it as we view the mercy of God and this great gift of, sacrifice, of salvation that he has given to us. So the standard by which we are to sacrificially serve Him is one that is pleasing to God. We don't ask ourselves, am I satisfied with my service? We are in earnest prayer to come before the Lord and say, are you satisfied with my service? That's what it means to have service to God that He is well pleased with. It is according to what it is He wants us to do. So in this presentation of ourselves sacrificially, we say yes, we say no, or we say yes, but I don't want to do this, I don't want to go there, I don't want to let go. So we, we'll say yes, but we'll do it on our own terms. So in verse 2, we see a transformed service. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're not to be conformed. And if you remember, being conformed to the world isn't something that we actively do. It's something that is being done to us. And we have to resist that. We resist that by giving ourselves over to transformation. We are to be transformed. We are to go through this metamorphosis from that old, pagan, sin-filled, sin-dominated creature into that which the God has made new, which has a passion to love Him and serve Him and finds great pleasure in serving Him. 
And this renewal takes place in our minds when we are saved, our spirit is saved, but our body and our mind is not saved. And that's why it needs to be transformed. It gives us new thinking, new values, new priorities, new purposes. And this is only going to happen as we give ourselves over to the authority, to the truth of the life-changing power that we find in God's Word. The result of that is that we will be able to prove that God's will is good, it is perfect, and it is acceptable, not to Him, but to me. You see, when we are lockstep with God, whatever it is He asks us to do, we know that we know this is good, this is the best for me, because I am walking in the shadow of the Almighty, and He is leading me where He wants me to go. We see in verse 3, a hindered service. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So when Paul says... Every one of you, there is no exception to that. Each and every one of us are to look at God's mercies, and we are urged to serve Him as a living sacrifice so that you and I can prove to ourselves and to the world that God's will is absolutely the best thing for us. Now, there's a positive and a negative in this, and we see in the negative the warning that we have to think correctly. Every one of us has the tendency to think more highly of himself than we ought. Now, if that wasn't true, then there wouldn't have been a need for this to be written in the Word, and this is not the only place it appears in the Word. So we have to be... We have to be careful that we have sound judgment or sober judgment about who we are. Now, some people don't like to talk about this and they don't like to hear this, but there is this conversation within Christian circles and it's called worm theology. And what it means is this, I am but a worm, I am but dust, I am unworthy, I am undeserving, but God loves me and has called me and has gifted me and has empowered me. And so when we possess that proper perspective of who we are, we are more inclined to see God as He truly is, and then we are more motivated to do what God has called us to do and to have a proper perspective of ourselves. So for some people, when God calls them to serve, they will say, well, you know, I've got too much education, I've got too much fame, I've got too much money, I've got too much of something to belittle myself and to do this thing that maybe God is calling me to do. Well, on the positive, the flip side of that is in verse 3, we need to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So it's a humble self-evaluation based upon not only the mercies of God, but the majesty and the glory, the holiness and the worthiness of God. So the third element of this hindered service is the challenge that we have to exercise our faith. Our tendency if we aren't overvaluating what we can do, is we undervalue, we underestimate, we underuse what God has gifted us to do. We say things like, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not trained enough, I don't know enough, I can't answer all the questions, I don't have time, etc., etc., etc. So we see now in verse 4, a unified service, the expectation... That is to be in the body of Christ, and that is in verse 4, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. So it's not an accident that all this conversation about sacrificial service is in the context of life within the body. 
Our gifts are to be used within the body for the purpose of building up the body. We'll talk about that in greater detail. But there's three things that we see here. There is unity in the body. We are a singular body of Christ. Globally, there is the singular church of Christ. Locally, we are the singular body of Christ. One bride, one body, one groom, right? We are to be one church. We are to think of ourselves that way. Yet there is incredible diversity within the local body of believers. Different educations, different environmental backgrounds, different families, existences. All that stuff is very, very different. It doesn't take us long to look around the room and say, Well, he's really different from me. I'm really different from her. But there is still to be unity within the body. And then thirdly, there is to be an interdependency within the body. I need you. And you need me. You know, one of the worst things a man ever wants to say out loud is, I need fill in the blank. I need help. I need advice. I need to borrow a tool. I need directions. Whatever it might be, men don't like to admit that there's a need for anything because we all possess incredible amounts of pride. But we need each other so that the body can function in a way that God is pleased with, that accomplishes His purpose within the church. So as we examine this interdependency within the body, the point is this. Every member functions to serve the body. The body doesn't exist to serve the members. It shifts the focus. The church isn't here for you. You are to be here for the church. It doesn't mean that you won't benefit by being in the church. It doesn't mean that you won't learn and grow and be encouraged and challenged and all that other stuff. But the purpose is very, very different. I am here because God has called me to be here and I want to serve Him here for the betterment of the body that I am a part of. Now, we get to where we are going to start today in Roman numeral 5 or 6. That is a gifted service. So this is still a bit of the review. The first part of verse 6, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each one of us is to exercise them accordingly. So gifts are... Divine enablement. Gifts are what God gives to you to serve Him. You don't go to Westchester University and do four years of college to get your spiritual gift. At the moment of your salvation, God gives to you your spiritual gift or gifts, and it is our responsibility to discover what those gifts are and to use them. Now, this spiritual gift, this divine enablement, is different from our natural skills and talents and abilities. They can be used together, but just because you have a financial mind doesn't mean you should be on the budget team within the church. It doesn't mean the same thing. There is a divine enablement that comes to serve God in the church. We're going to talk about that in much greater detail as we go through this. So there's three main truths that we get from this. One is our, ter- our gifts differ. We're not all gifted the same way. As Paul would explain in Corinthians, we're not all ears, we're not all hands, we're not all feet, right? We are all different, but together we will make up a unified body. Our gifts are by His grace. God chooses. We don't need to pray for it. We don't need to belabor it. We don't need to be upset over what God has or has not gifted us with. I remember early in my Christian walk, I was taught these different gifts were available. And so I agonized over it, and I prayed, and I sought, and I was bothered by it. And I finally learned that God gives to me the gift that He wants me to have. It doesn't matter that all that other stuff wasn't accurate, but that's that 
feeling that people can have is, I don't have the gift that I want to have, and I'm going to feel bad about that, and therefore I'm going to take my gift home, and I'm not going to use it. Well, that's not the way it's supposed to be within the church. So our gifts are by His grace. Thirdly, our gifts are to be used. We are to exercise them accordingly. Our gifts are to be used to build up the body. So now the brand new stuff, First uh, Peter 4.10 there is, each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That is our purpose, call, motivation, as we look at this from First Peter. Now we look in Roman numeral 7 and we get to the gifts. So what are we to do in service to God to the body of Christ? I went through this. And I had about 85 minutes worth of message. <laughs> and nobody has that kind of attention span. So we're going to have to do this in two parts. I wasn't planning on doing that. But it was just impossible to get done in one message. So let's read together the second part of verse 6 as we've walked through Romans 12, 1 through 6a. And then we're also going to take a look at 1 Corinthians. And we'll read... Uh, from 4 through 10 there. So get your finger there. So as Paul is talking about this gift. So if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now what Paul has said here to the Roman church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not all that is said about spiritual gifts within the Word of God. So I wanted to go through what is the other major passage that relates to spiritual gifts. And so as we look together in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 10, Paul says some of the same thing to the Corinthian church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects but the same God who works all things and all persons, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Sounds very similar to what we've read in Romans. Now here's the specific parts about spiritual gifts. Verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. Now, let me preface what we're about to say with a few words. Anytime there is a discussion about spiritual gifts, there tends to be great disagreement. The disagreement can be on the categories, on the number, on the actual gifts themselves, on how they're to be used, on where they can and can't be used. There's always going to be some disagreement about spiritual gifts. What I've tried to do is I've tried to consolidate what most would agree would be accurate as we talk about spiritual gifts in particular. So some of you aren't going to agree with everything that I say. Just reserve your judgment till we get to the end, and then go back and read and study and look at what others have said about the particulars as it relates to these spiritual gifts. So the first thing we're going to look at categorically is the scope of these spiritual gifts. So letter A, there are permanent spiritual gifts. These are gifts that are always going to be present in the church. They were present 
at the day of Pentecost, they're going to be present until Jesus comes and takes us home and ends this world that we know. These gifts are always going to be present in the life of the church. Well, there are also temporary gifts, and this is where you can get in to some of the disagreement. So the purpose of temporary gifts, or sign gifts as they're sometimes called, was that they were used to authenticate the apostolic message of the Word of God until the time when Scripture was all sewn up and the revelation ceased and we had a completed revelation from God. So let me give you an example. If someone were to come in and say, hey, my name is Joe and I have got the best device you could ever hope to own and if you'll help me, you and I can become incredibly Wealthy, You'd say, okay, well, show me some proof of that. I need to see you demonstrate validity and accuracy to the thing that you're telling me, right? So when Jesus came along and when the apostles and the disciples came along, they were saying all these things that the people had never heard, and the people said, prove it to me. Show me that what you're saying is true. And so God had gifted them with signs and miracles and wonders that took place. So some of these gifts include miracles, healing, languages, and the interpretation of languages. That's not a complete list, but that is from what we would find in the two passages that we're going to look at today. Now, that does not mean that God cannot or does not perform miracles in our world today. It doesn't mean that God cannot or does not heal people as the children of God pray to him. It doesn't mean that God isn't still working in miraculous ways, doing things that can only be explained by Him. What it means is those gifts that appeared to be so prevalent in the first century were temporary to authenticate the gospel message and these individuals as those who were truly sent by God. There are not legitimate healers and miracle workers in our world today like we would see in the early church. The reason we don't see miracles in our world today as recorded in Scripture is because there's no longer a need to authenticate or validate the truth of God's Word. God's Word is self-authenticating And since it has been completed, there isn't the need for signs and wonders and all these other things that we've seen in the Bible. Now, languages or the gifts of tongues is one of the most widely mistaught and misunderstood gifts that are listed in the Bible. And there's going to be disagreement about this as well. The word tongue in the Bible, as related to spiritual gifts, always refers to language even though there is a different Greek word for language than there is for tongue. So the Greek word glossa is the word tongue, but you would hear people say, they speak in my native tongue. And that's exactly what we look at in Acts chapter 2. At the day of Pentecost, the people, they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language, not glossa, that is the particular word for language, to which we were born? And it goes on with this list. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, 
Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues, Glossa, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now, Pentecost was one of those major national feasts that all Jews were required to attend. And so with this massive gathering of Jewish people from all parts of the world, at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they hear these uneducated Galileans speaking a language they had never studied before. How is it that I hear you speak Spanish? You're not Spanish. You've never been trained in that. How can you speak Portuguese? You're not Brazilian. You've not been trained in that language. That is what it means to have the gift of tongues as it relates to spiritual gifts in the Bible. Now, at the day of Pentecost, the gift of language was given for the purpose of spreading the gospel to the regions of the world where Jesus had not traveled And as the disciples and apostles were scattered under the persecution of the church, assuming they still had that gift of language, they would travel into these areas and be able to preach the gospel to those that had not yet heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, it is not necessary today for us to be gifted in languages that we have not studied. It does not mean that God cannot or does not gift people that way. I heard a story of a missionary who told of a time he was preaching in a tent meeting and he was in a native uh, in a place different from his own. He had a translator over there doing all the sign stuff and speaking through the microphone to help people understand. And he noticed in his peripheral vision that the man stopped. And he looked over and said, why did you stop? And he said, I hear you in my own language. God can still do that. But he isn't doing it the way it was done at Pentecost, and he isn't doing it the way that it's prescribed as we look at the gift of tongues. So we can spend a lot more time about that, but that's not really the purpose that I have in doing spiritual gifts today. We can talk more about that if you would like. So we looked at the scope. Secondly, we look at the purposes. The purposes of spiritual gifts. Letter A, it is to edify the church. Now, generally speaking, the permanent gifts are used to continually edify the church throughout the church age. These permanent gifts that have been given to build up the church are always going to be there. These gifts are to be, are, are to be ministered by His people at all times in the life of the church. And that's why God has gifted us so that we can be a part of the edification of the body until God calls us home. Letter B, gifts were given to confirm the Word of God. This is the category that the temporary gifts would generally fall into. These were limited in time to authenticate the message and the messengers as those who were speaking for the Lord. It is believed by most that these gifts were limited to the apostolic age and therefore ceased after that time. That's what it means for the temporary gifts, confirming the word of God, what was being spoke by these messengers. Now, number three, we look at the types. There are only two types. Letter A, there are the verbal gifts. These gifts include prophecy and knowledge and wisdom and teaching, exhortation and evangelism, which we'll pick up in Ephesians chapter 4, which isn't mentioned in Romans or in Corinthians. And these will all be in print for you, so don't scramble to write those down. So we have the verbal gifts. Letter B, we have the nonverbal gifts. 
the nonverbal gifts, which can be generally classified as service gifts, and these would include leadership, helps, giving, mercy, faith, and discernment. Now, today we're only going to be able to look at the verbal gifts. We'll look at the nonverbal next week. So as we look at the verbal gifts, we're going to be in Romans, and I'll let you know when we're flipping back over to 1 Corinthians. So the first one that we look at is the gift of prophecy. In Romans 12, 6b, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. This is one that can be very confusing for us because when you and I think of a prophet, what do we think of? We think of Isaiah or Jeremiah or some other individual in the Old Testament who was speaking for the Lord this revelation that the people had never heard before. And so it's a combination of things that it really means. So some interpreters believe that this was a special revelatory gift only that belonged to the apostles and to the Old Testament prophets. And like the sign gifts, miracles and healings, etc., they ceased after those men had died. So while the gift of prophecy definitely had a revelatory aspect, especially in the Old Testament, And through apostolic times, prophecy is not limited to revelation. It was exercised when there was public proclamation of divine truth, whether it be old or new. So if you were to look down a little further in 1 Corinthians 12.10, it's linked with signs and gifts and supernatural and the revelatory. Here it is linked with speaking and serving gifts, leading to the conclusion that it had both a revelatory and a non-revelatory aspect to it. So if someone says, I have the gift of prophecy, it would not mean that they have the gift of revealing God's word that is not in his word. It would be more along the lines of explaining what God's word means. This is a lot of what you find in the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul as a trained Pharisee who expanded upon all of Jewish life He was prophesying about the word of God that had already been given, and he himself has also been inspired to write the word of God as the Holy Spirit spoke to him. So the Old Testament prophet, or the New Testament prophet, the apostles, might speak direct revelation, but could and did also declare what had been revealed previously. So the gift of prophecy does not pertain to the content, but rather to the means of, a proclamation. So in our day, it is the act of enablement to proclaim God's word already written in Scripture. There's a definition coming. Hang on. Paul gives no distinction to this gift among the others in Romans, which are clearly ongoing gifts in the church. Therefore, it is not limited to revelation. So here's a definition for us on prophecy. It is the gift of preaching or proclaiming The Word of God. Well, why didn't you just say that and move on? Well, because just to say that has to have some background information for us to be able to say, oh, well, that makes sense. I can see why that would be said about the gift of prophecy. So the gift of prophecy is the preaching or the proclaiming of the Word of God. I think this will make more sense as we go through the rest of these speaking gifts. So the second one, and these definitions aren't going to stay up because there just won't be enough room for them. So write fast or catch me afterwards and I'll fill in the blanks with you. Number two in the speaking gifts, the verbal gifts, is teaching. Romans 12:7b, or he who teaches in his teaching. So the meaning here is really pretty simple. The Greek word for teaches is didaskon, and it refers to the act of teaching. And then the content 
didaskalia, excuse me, the action of teaching is didaskalia, which can refer to what is taught as well as the act. So teaching is the content and it is the action. It is both of these things. So you could hear someone who would proclaim God's word and they would have much more of a teaching style. You have others who have a much more of a prophetic style and they're very different. So both of the meanings are appropriate to this gift, the act of teaching and the content of teaching. So the Christian who teaches is divinely gifted with the ability to interpret and present God's truth understandably. Now, if you've ever been in a teaching setting and someone is up there talking about God's word and you say, I don't follow what they're doing. I, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, they may not have the gift of teaching. They may be more of a prophetic style. They may be more of an exhorter, which we'll look at. But that's what it means to be a teacher. So the primary difference between teaching and prophesying is not in content, but in the distinction between the ability to proclaim and the ability to give systematic and regular instruction in God's word. So the gift of teaching could apply to a teacher in a seminary, a college class, a Christian school, a Sunday school, elementary or advanced, where God's truth is taught. They don't have to have a title. They don't have to be employed. They can have the gift of teaching because they have the ability to systematically teach the truth of God's word in an understandable way. Number three, exhortation. Still in Romans 12, verse 8a, or he who exhorts in his exhortation. So the connotation of of exhortation is very broad, and we've talked about this a little bit. It's very similar to the word urge. Both the verb, parakaleo, exhorts, and the noun, parakalesis, exhortation, are compounds of the same two words, para and kaleo. When you put those together, The literal meaning is calling to one's side. And so this is closely related to the paraclete that Jesus referred to in the Gospels when he talked about himself and the Holy Spirit, the helper that would come, the paraclete, who would come alongside of us and help us and encourage us in our daily walk. So a definition for exhortation, it encompasses the ideas of advising and pleading encouraging and comforting. And sometimes it can be a little bit more stern than that. It can be warning because people are getting off track. So there's a a number of ideas that are a part of exhortation, but it's uh, the idea of advising, pleading, encouraging, and comforting. So at one time, the gift may be used to persuade a believer to turn from sin or from a bad habit, and later on that gift might be used to encourage that individual to stay the course in giving up this destructive behavior in their life. The gift may also be used to admonish the church as a whole in obedience to God's word. So this can take place in preaching, it can take place in a meeting, that exhortation is this admonition to obey God's word. So exhortation may be exercised in comforting a brother or a sister in the Lord who's facing trouble or suffering physically, emotionally, or during a time of persecution. Sometimes they may use the gift to walk beside a friend 
who is grieving, is discouraged, frustrated, or, dis- or depressed to give help in whatever way is needed. It's that visible picture of a guy putting his arm around another guy or a girl around another girl and helping them through the difficult times. So the gift may be exercised in helping someone carry a burden that is just too heavy to carry alone. And so we come alongside like the paraclete to encourage one. Now, flip over to 1 Corinthians. The next two we're going to get are from there. Number four is the gift of wisdom. So 1 Corinthians 8a, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. So the phrase, the word of wisdom, is important. It's important because it includes the word logos, which makes most believe that this is a part of the speaking gifts. It's not just knowing in your head what is the right thing to do and doing it, but it's the giftedness to speak that into the lives of other people. It's a very broad-ranging term. In the apostolic age, it may have been revelation at times because the Word of God was not yet written. In the New Testament, wisdom is used most often to refer to the ability to understand God's will and apply it to someone's life obediently. So it is helping others to understand God's word in such a way that they will obey the truth of his word. So wisdom then as a definition refers basically to the ability of applying truths discovered to the ability to make skillful and practical application of the truth to life situations. Taking the truth of God's word and making a practical application to one's own life situation. There's a lot of people who are struggling and suffering, and they're searching for answers, and they just randomly open a book or a Bible and point to a verse, and they pray that God would speak to them through that verse, right? Well, that's not the gift of wisdom. We need someone to help us by applying the truths skillfully so that we can make practical application to life situation. So communicating wisdom is the function primarily of the expositor who draws not only from his own study of scripture, but from the many insights of interpretations of commentators and other Bible scholars. It is also the ability a counselor must have in order to apply God's truth to the questions and problems brought to him. And that's why some people will say, hey, I feel like God's called me to be a counselor. And people go, really? I never would have guessed that. That's not a compliment. That's an indication that I don't see a lot of wisdom and your ability to apply the truth of God's word to your own life, let alone to the lives of people who would come to you. So it is a feature in the gift of the pastor who must know, understand, and be able to apply God's word in order to lead his people as he should. Now the fifth verbal gift is knowledge. We see this in verse 8b. And to another, the word of knowledge according to the same spirit. So again, you see here the phrase word of knowledge, indicating that this knowledge isn't what we know intellectually, but it's speaking of the knowledge. The word knowledge is a broad term which basically refers to perceiving and understanding the truths of God's word. Now remember, these gifts we're talking about are divine enablement. These are the gifts that God has given And so some will have a very unique ability to understand the truths of God's word, to make application, to exhort, to teach, 
or to speak prophetically about these truths. Now, this may have been a part of the revelatory gift in the first century, but it is especially the gift of communicating insight into the mysteries of this revelation, those truths that could not be known apart from God's revelation. So let me make this very, very clear. In all of these speaking gifts, no matter what they are, there is given a proper interpretation of God's Word. It is not the revelation of God's Word. God's Word has already been revealed. You don't need any individual to reveal God's Word to you, but we can benefit from people who can explain in a way that we can understand and then apply God's Word to us. Because apart from that, we read something and we go, I don't really understand what that means. Sounds good, but I don't know how to make this real in my own life. God gives some people a special ability to study His Word and discover the full meaning of the text and the context of words and phrases of related passages and truths and thereby help provide understanding for others. Now, I am a direct benefactor of this gift. Whenever I preach, I consult a number of commentaries and it amazes me how individuals can recall verses or passages or phrases or cultural context. When I read that, I go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I needed to know that. Some have the special gift. Others are in need of that special gift to help them in their task of teaching whatever they do in service to the Lord. One of the better insights into this is found in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, which he probably didn't, but he's talking about spiritual gifts. So the gift of knowledge is just the capability of grasping the meaning of God's revelation, which is mystery to the natural mind. Knowledge is foundational for all Christian teaching and preaching, as well as for the proper exercise of counseling and leadership, wisdom, and other ministries and gift. If a person does not have that ability himself, the gift of knowledge, he must rely heavily on those who do in order to, in order to exercise his own gifts properly. So the teacher or preacher is especially dependent on knowledge because he is commissioned to teach and interpret God's truths to others. Anytime somebody comes in and, and just wings it, it's a disservice to the Word of God. It's a disservice to the people that are sitting there because we all need to hear the truth of God's Word explained correctly and applied properly to our lives. So a Christian with the gift of knowledge may be highly trained in biblical languages, history, archaeology, and theology, and that's probably where it's most concentrated. And God can use that training in the working of his gift. But another person with the same gift may have limited formal education. In either case, the ability to comprehend spiritual truth is God-given. Right now, the last speaking gift we're going to look at is the gift of evangelism. This is not mentioned in Romans or in 1 Corinthians, but we know that it is a spiritual gift. As we look in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, And he, God, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. We pretty much know what an evangelist is. The work of the evangelist is to preach and explain the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to those who have not yet believed. 
one that has the gift of evangelism proclaims the salvation of grace that has come from God through the cross of Jesus Christ. These gifted individuals are uniquely designed and given to the church to reach the lost with the gospel. And as they are drawn into the church, others who have the speaking gifts can disciple them so that they grow up into maturity. This is a ministry that every church should have as a high priority because it's in the Word of God. If we are not evangelizing, we are ignoring the Great Commission. If we are not evangelizing, then we are not exercising the gift that God has given to us. Now, as we talk about spiritual gifts, that's not what it means at all. I don't have the gift of prophecy, so it means I don't have to be responsible to accurately talk about the truth of God's Word. Right? Wrong. We need to be students of the Word. We need to know, we need to understand, we need to apply, and we need to serve And we are all going to need to serve the body in areas where we may not be specifically gifted. Now that will be a lot more applicable when we talk about the nonverbal gifts next time. So if you don't have the gift of prophecy or wisdom or knowledge or exhortation or teaching, you probably shouldn't sign up to be a Sunday school teacher. You probably shouldn't occupy the pulpit. Because it might not help people. But that doesn't mean that you can't be a student of the Word and learn and grow and share what you do know about God and His Word to those around you. When we talk about serving the body, we're talking about edifying the body through the gifts that God has given to us. Some possess more than one. Some possess the verbal gifts and they've just stuffed it in their pocket and they said, I don't want to do that because I know it's going to be a sacrifice to read and to study and to give something up. I can't tell you the number of stories I've heard about men who were called to be pastors. And they said, you know what, God called me when I was a young, uh, young adult to be a pastor and I said, no, I don't want to do that. And I couldn't escape it. And so in my 40s or in my 50s with a family, I went to seminary. See, we're not supposed to say no to God's gift. We're supposed to say, thank you. How can I serve you with this gift? You know, it's a privilege to be able to serve the one who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's it's a joyful obligation, not a duty of drudgery to serve the Lord. We'll talk more about these nonverbal gifts, and I'm hoping to find something I can distribute to you that will help you assess your own spiritual gifts, and then we can have some further application about what that might mean in your life. So if anything I've said this morning isn't making sense or you need some help with the blanks, let me know. We'll do that. Let's pray together, and then we'll be done. Father, a lot of, um, a lot of information. Maybe it's new, maybe it's not. But Father, I know this, your body is dependent upon the gifts you've given to your body to edify and build up your body. And regardless of what the gift is, I pray that you would birth within our hearts a restlessness, a compulsion to exercise the gift in any way I possibly can. Father, I pray that you would show us how the deceiver wants to make that sacrifice seem like it's unreasonable And yet, as we consider your mercies, how could we not 
serve you. God, I pray that over these um, next days as we talk about the application of these gifts, that we would just be filled with a sense of joy and wonder about what you might do in and through us as we give ourselves to you in a new way, in a life-changing way, as we want to serve you in a way that is pleasing to you. Father, thank you that you can do a lot with a little. I pray that we would, by faith, trust you and give ourselves to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.